Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back a few years ago on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 129, we talked with and heard poetry written by Dr. Juana Rosa Pita. Well, there's a new compilation of certain selections of Juana Rosa's poems that's just been published, titled The Miracle Unfolds. So in honor of this work, we're going to talk with both Juana Rosa herself and the translator of this book, Aaron Goodman. I interviewed the two women on separate occasions, but I've intertwined the two recordings together here and there where it seemed to make sense. We start this program with Miss Goodman relaying the story of how she and Juana Rosa became acquainted with each other. Uh, it's funny because I had read a, a lot of poetry by Spanish writers, Latin American writers in high school and college, and had never come across her and then sort of set that aside. And it wasn't until about eight years ago, Juana Rosa and I are neighbors in the sense that we live in the same town. And so we were serendipitously introduced and it was at the exact moment that I was just beginning to translate poetry and more literary uh, content as opposed to policy or other types of writing. And I sort of jokingly said to her, oh, would you ever, Look, would you ever need a translator? Would you ever like me to look at some of your work and and do some sample translations? And she said, "Oh yes, of course." And uh, and we went out for lunch, and that was eight years ago. And now we're we're friends, we're collaborators. I've translated um, recently a book that is a selection from seven volumes of poetry that she's published since we met. So I would say a lifelong friendship um, formed through this sort of serendipitous encounter. Well, if we can get into the weeds for a second, of course, whenever you read a poem that's been translated or anything that's been translated, if you talk to a native speaker, they'll always say, well, it's a shame you can't speak my language because you're really missing a lot. So, uh, especially with poetry, because poetry is supposed to use like an economy of words uh, and it's supposed to be this beauty and mystery and, you know, how do you translate a poem and make it say what it says in the original language without making it like this kind of wooden, almost like clinical uh, type of work in the end. So like you said, with poetry, you've got to think about the economy of words. You have to think about the tone, the register, how formal the poem is. Does it rhyme? Is there meter? That sort of thing. All these elements that you don't usually encounter to such an extent with prose. Um, So for that reason, I've heard this idea, and I believe in it, that when you're translating poetry, what you're doing is actually recreating a poem or rewriting that poem in another language as faithfully as possible. So you're, you you want to keep all of those original elements to the extent possible, but you can't, um, you can't attempt to say, I'm creating the same exact thing. I'm just, so what you're doing is recreating something new. So I assume you write poetry yourself enough to be able to pull this off? At one point I did. Um, And in college, it's funny because I um, submitted a poem that I wrote and it won the 
the poetry competition, and it was a poem about Cuba. I had just traveled to Cuba for the first time around uh, 2001. And after that, I set poetry aside in terms of my own writing for a long time. And so that's why it's really um, interesting and special that Juana Rosa's book is the first book of poetry that I've translated because, as you know, she is Cuban-born. Um, and I found a lot of commonalities with her voice. Or She's someone I would aspire to if I ever had been a poet in another life. I wish I could write like her. Okay. So that's what I aspire to do, okay. is to uh, give English language readers a taste of her poetry. Okay. So is there a particular poem or a line of Miss Pita's that you think would be a good introduction to her style? Um, yes. Well, it's hard to say what's between my favorite and the best represent representation, but um, yes, let's see. There's a poem that's called The True Thing. This poem is from about six years ago, um, and the reason that I think it's it represents her work is because it's about people meeting and that subtle and unspoken bond between people, and it also weaves in this her belief in the university in the sorry in the universe. And Juana Rosa really believes that there's a divine or cosmic um, space and being out there connecting us all. And so this poem brings that all together. So this poem in Spanish is called Lo Verdadero, which in English I translated as the true thing. And this is the original. Hay algo verdadero que pasa a través de nosotros, imperceptible casi, cuando nos encontramos. Y sostiene saber Lo verdadero, aunque solo a veces haya mirada, decir, gesto que lo exprese, siempre actúa, invisible como, según los astrofísicos, el tejido armónico que mantiene urdido el universo. So, in English, this poem is called The True Thing. There's something true that passes between us, almost imperceptible when we meet. And it's worth knowing that truth though it only sometimes finds a gaze, a phrase, a gesture to express it, always acts invisible, as, according to astrophysicists, the harmonious weaving that upholds the tapestry of the universe. And now Dr. Peter comments on the one true thing. The true thing is is one of my ideas of uh, truths and 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 also the things that are so vanishing and things like that. I have one poem that is not that one that says everything that is true is contemporary, mm-hmm. like meaning truth sticks, yeah. <laughs> sticks around even for centuries and millennia. Truths. And, and the things that really vanish so easily and disappear and crumble are lies normally. So truth is contemporary. And in human relations, um, just like in everything, it happens that these things that are not seen but are, are there, you know, you can feel them, you know, something like uh, it's an invisible net like the physics, I mentioned the astrophysics talk about the net that intertwines the universe. But there is that net in every scene, you know, the invisible, but that is there, is very meaningful. And between people, they are things that are true and unite those people or separate them, affinities, whatever, mm-hmm. beings, affinities. And this is what the true thing is. Sometimes you feel it. 
and there is no need for words or a gesture or a gaze or something and there is a something true between people or there is nothing <laughs> sometimes you know So you mentioned that you've gotten to know her over the past what a uh, little bit shy of ten years, right? Right. Um, give give us some stories. Like, what what's your favorite thing about Miss Pita? She's in her early eighties, as you know, born in Cuba, came to the U.S. as a twenty-one year old wife and mother, and lived the sort of immigrant experience until later in life she became a poet and. Literature defined then her identity, I'd say, since she was in her 40s, so the last 40 years. And she's created or is naturally has a persona that is very literary. So she is very elegant. She's always impeccably dressed. She wears a beret. She often wears stylish sunglasses. She's She stands out in a crowd and her personality matches her physical presence. Um, she's just a riot. She's such a unique person. Um, and she lives in a small apartment in this area filled with books, just floor to ceiling and art and correspondence from her poet friends over the years, um, paintings even dedicated to her. And so she's just got this amazing personality. Um, and I feel like she's sort of out of time. Like she's from another era and she deserves her light in the, her place in the light, a place in the sun here. And so, um, that's part of the goal with this book. So you talked about in your own experience, you got to go to Cuba some years ago and, uh, obviously you have an interest in all this and we have a lot of Cuban Americans and Cuban exiles on the podcast when we can. Uh, how did you get drawn into that culture? Yeah, so um, I studied international relations and Latin American studies. Like I said, I first went to Cuba in college almost 20 years ago, and that was after taking a class in the Cuban Revolution, and that was sort of one point in time. And then about seven years ago for my job at Harvard University, I worked with the Cuba Studies program and was traveling to, to Cuba fairly often, um, leading student groups and working on conferences and events that have to do with Cuba in the post-normalization era. So that was after Obama and Raul Castro had sort of tried to have a rapprochement and bring our, our countries together. And that was a different time. So I um, was fortunate through work and personal reasons. I traveled to Cuba almost every other month for about two years oh, wow. and was able to see a really exciting time in Cuban history from, say, 2017 to 2019 before the pandemic and watched watched the opening of the private sector, watch artists gain a bigger international presence, watched uh, young entrepreneurs create their own galleries, their own restaurants, bars, um, experiences for tourists. And it was a really exciting time in terms of people's agency, people thinking, hey, I can create something and have a life here and I can share it with my compatriots and with foreigners. And um, it was just a lot of energy around Cuba, which um, has changed recently, and I think all eyes are on the situation right now to see how things evolve. Give us another poem that you're, you feel strongly about this in this collection. Okay, I could give you two poems about the moon. Coincidentally, they're both about the moon. Um, and I think the moon is kind of, in this case, a metaphor for Juana Rosa herself. That's my interpretation. But um, 
This poem is called Almost Human the Moon, and I can read it first in Spanish and then in English since it's pretty short. Sure. Casi humana la luna. Hay mañanas en que la luna se resiste a volverse invisible. Contagiada de humanidad, la luna se arraiga en el azul de su mañana. Le parece, quizás, que desaparecer a la vista de otros es como morir, aunque su fuga sea transitoria. Almost human, the moon. There are mornings when the moon resists becoming invisible. Swept up with humanity, the moon takes root in the blue of its morning. It seems, perhaps, to the moon that to vanish while others look on is like dying, although its disappearance is fleeting. Okay, and then the other poem about the moon, which I also really love, I'll read it in English. It's called Invisible Red Moon. Without knowing, we knew what the clairvoyant heart sang would give a sign of life, despite the lack of mediating miracle or fantasy. To forge joy in a kiln keeps the cave from misery, the mind unburdened of trickery, wary of the world's obstinacy. To know you exist with me royals my inner sea and illuminates, hidden red moon, the present. And a golden dream of you unfurls its fronds in the deep sleep that follows ardent insomnia. the moon, I'm personalizing the moon. We think that because things finish or uh, that they don't return, probably the moon, I'm personalizing the moon, you know. It's a way to imagine that she has feelings like us that think that because all of the sudden she disappears, that's the end. Mm -hmm. But that's the mystery of life. I don't believe that life is a mortality is not even a finish it's a transit but i'm i'm projecting that belief into the moons making her think that because she all of the sudden disappears that's the end of it but the next day she's going to come out again it goes beyond the moon i'm personalizing the moon in order to express my feelings about the mystery of life and mortality that perhaps not, that I don't think is the end. You know, mortality is just a transit for me. But of course, it seems like it's the end. It reminds me of uh, some cultures believe that the cycle of the year, like there's certain personifications of of death and then resurrection in the spring and, and things of that nature. So uh, that's very... Yeah, but it's more like a, a transcendental belief, no? In that sense, it, it's not the thing. It's not the moon. The moon is just uh, being, uh, you know, used, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Or I'm projecting myself on the moon. But this is why it says she's almost human because we worry about mortality when we don't have a transcendental view of life, so to speak. If I could say what I suggest or evoke in a poem, I wouldn't write the poem. So I'm trying <laughs> to explain you all this, and I'm probably not doing very well. No, it would be better to read the poem and right. see what it tells you. <laughs> right. I know a lot of people don't like explaining, but sometimes 
I, I don't necessarily need it explained, but sometimes no, I... No, some poems benefit from a background. Yes. If they, have, if they have, like, one of the ones that I might read today, they have some narration intertwined with the main uh, ideas, feelings, and reflections of the poems. They can benefit with some background, but not all of them. And the majority of them, I would say, they more benefit more by carefully reading and rereading, and then they start telling you, letting you discover their, their meanings, you know. Is there one piece that stirs you personally? Yes, um, there's a poem that, um, it's exactly what I was just talking about, people meeting each other for mm. the first time or having a special person in your life. Um, and it's called The Irreplaceable. It's another short poem, just like the last one. Um, but I can read that one. Okay. Sort of a continuation of the true thing. This poem is called The Irreplaceable. Sometimes the right person arrives by an unusual route, taking a risk and straying from the path, just as a poem frequently must wait an exorbitant time for the illumination that conveys the irreplaceable word, arduous style of reflexive love. En español, lo instituible. A veces llega la persona justa por una rota insólita, arriesgando perderse en un desfío del camino. Así como a menudo un verso debe esperar un tiempo exorbitante por la iluminación que porta la palabra insustituible. Arduo estilo del reflexivo amor. Well, what was the impetus for translating uh, and publishing this particular collection? Because like you said, she's had many works come out. And I think she tries to translate some herself, right? Right. She's translated some of her, her poems herself, especially into Italian and some into English. Her children at different times have also translated a few poems. What happened was, since we met in 2012 or 2013, around then, she was translating these shorter books of poetry. And for each book that she'd translate, we would choose a selection together of, say, six or eight poems. And we'd print what a, sort of a mini chapbook, a little flyer that would accompany the Spanish version. And we would do readings and things like that. Um, but it was very informal. And so when we got to a point in time where we had already over a hundred poems translated from these recent books, I said to her, I think it's time that we publish a collection. And the reason is that she's just not very well known in English mm -hmm. and in Spanish, she is much more well known. But as I mentioned in the beginning with, I had never come across her work and I think people deserve to read it. So. Then we spent some time looking for a publisher, and then this book that we just uh, released was supposed to come out early in 2020 and was delayed for the pandemic. So it's it's sort of finally found its homecoming now, and my hope is that more people will discover her work in both languages. Now, you all are up in the Boston area, right? Yes. So and you mentioned taking her, you guys went to some readings together. How does that usually go? up there because I know every region kind of has its own like open mic type of thing or sometimes there's poets that are scheduled like is poetry popular enough up there uh well it's all relative I don't know if poetry <laughs> will ever be the hottest thing but it is having a resurgence and and we're both in the Cambridge area okay. and Cambridge Massachusetts has been the home of many poets historically so 
We were fortunate to be invited to a foreign language bookstore that was in Harvard Square and another Spanish speaking uh, Spanish speaking venue in Harvard Square. And we did readings that were centered only on her work, which is pretty unusual. Wow. Normally, you, there's a series of poets that would read at the same time. But these were um, bilingual readings of a half an hour, 40 minutes where she would read one poem in Spanish and I'd read in English and then we would sort of take questions. And so um, I think we're really fortunate to have had that platform here. to Cuba, does she have any poems in this collection that directly addresses her her former homeland, especially as an exile? Yeah, there, well, there are only two poems that touch on Cuba. Uh-huh. Um, one of them you've heard, but it's my favorite one. It's, it's about a little boy from her childhood. Um, and this is one of my favorite poems. Uh-huh. And it's, it's about Cuba and migration, but it's also about the experience of being in exile, leaving everything behind and not knowing what happened to the people who stayed in your homeland. So uh, this poem is called Not Knowing What Became Of. The son of Julia, the woman my grandfather hid a potato from under his bed, seasoning her housekeeping with jest. Robertico, with his snowy smile, lit up my visions when I was a child inclined toward infinity. In those days, I was the white goddess of his boyhood, his favorite dish, the unforgettable lost chicken in the garden. Soon after I entered into exile, a field of remote enigmatic waves, he was imprisoned for defying those whose souls are black. I never heard from him again, but this morning, just before dawn, a blue suitcase arrived on a raft, washed up on the shore of a dream. Now I write this poem. Not knowing what became of Robertico, let this be a sign of the adverse miracle others know as uprootedness sacred realm for offering up the fruits. The day I recorded with Juana Rosa, November the 15th, 2021, in Cuba, another island-wide protest against the communist dictatorship was occurring. The Cuban government had shut off the internet, so we weren't quite sure how events were unfolding. But the anticipation caused me to ask Dr. Pita about a poem she had told me about back during the July 11th protest that she felt was apropos, as it sadly continues to be. This is not a seat of light. It has three stanzas. And the only thing I have to say before is that the first and the last stanza take place at the moment in which this process that's been going on for 60 years in Cuba was starting. I was a very young girl, you know. And then the protagonist of the poem is my grandpa. Abuelo is grandpa in English. Mm. So the first and the last stanza are in this moment, but the middle is between parentheses and is sort of an evocation on how when my grandfather was young, arriving in Cuba from Germany. And and so it it gives a flashback. So that said, I'm going to read the poem. Abuelo's reluctant prophecy, time's vertigo. When I was 19, I was present among a mesmerized crowd. The white dove perched on the shoulder of the disingenuous leader, like Hamelin's piper come to Havana. 
After many hours, dusk at hand, my friends and I dispersed. When I got home, he was still talking. Suddenly, Abuelo, an irrigation mechanic with a huge soul who had suffered from afar the surrender of his homeland to a kindred humbug, burst out, so to speak, a phrase that only later dawned on me as prophetic. That man is going to destroy Cuba. Now I open the parenthesis. Abuelo had arrived from Stuttgart in the 20s en route to Mexico, but after falling in love with my grandmother, they lost track of him until three decades had gone by. He made the island his homeland, like so many oppressed souls from China, Armenia, Lebanon, like Sebald, his compatriot, who casually connected this smiling black man in a purple car to King Melchior in the same color mantle of his childhood Christmas, Abuelo fell prey to vertigo, memory's way of seeking meaning through time. Then I go back to the present of 1959. His arrogant demeanor, the confiscated sacred symbols offering death as the country's sole option, save for accepting his might, sounded ominous enough to Abuelo for him to utter prophetic words in spite of us and perhaps himself. Faithful harbinger of sins to come, unjustifiable plunge into a sea of grief. He was not an intellectual, but he had suffered from afar mm -hmm. what happened to Germany when he fell to that demagogic leader here we know all about. He was a very candid person. He just said it out of the blues. This man is going to destroy Cuba. No intellect, no reasoning. Just he had the hunch. Yeah, instinct. Instinct. Yeah. Because he knew it. You know, because truth reveals itself to, to you when you are open to find out truths. You know, because I noticed very intelligent people don't see things as they are because they are not open. They don't want to see it. You know, they are, they don't want to see things because they want to have the illusions they are otherwise. We have this saying in the South that he's so smart, he's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you can use your intelligence in order to find out. You can prove anything with intelligence. Even the, the, the greatest fallacies you can prove. Right. Uh, make arguments to try to make it look true, you know. Well, we cannot exaggerate, but this is the truth. You know, he was, he had that epiphany. Next, I asked Juana Rosa on how she remembers first meeting Miss Erin Goodman. We first met by chance, you know, in a lobby of a building. And then I introduced myself as a, a poet that had just published a Smiling Angel, which, which is one of the first books selected here, included in the selection of The Miracle on Falls. And I gave it to her because it was a bilingual edition in Spanish and Italian. 
she doesn't speak Italian, but it doesn't matter. It was in Spanish. So and she got into it. She liked it very much. We we got in touch, and she told me she worked in Harvard uh, with Latin America, and she used to travel every now and then to Chile and so forth. So that's how we met. And that was around 2013, 14, yeah. This collection that she's helped put out, what were some of the highlights for you once you got the print form in your hands? We were doing actually little by little because there are seven books included here in this anthology. It's not an anthology. It's a selection of each of the books. No, So the thing is only two of them had already been published when we met. So the first thing she wanted to do, and I was very happy that she had that idea, uh, was to do a flyer. I offered to do the flyer for her since I'm an editor too. I say, I can make a, a wonderful flyer if you choose 12, 15 poems mm-hmm. of Smiling Angel. So we did a flyer of that one. So then I start writing and publishing the other books. And when they were uh, written, I gave them the opportunity to choose, and I also suggest some of my favorites, no, on the critics' favorites, the ones that were signal notes by the critics. She started doing the same with the next books I was writing and publishing. So it was a process that we didn't see the whole thing at the same time. It was growing, mm-hmm. so to speak, as my work was uh, being published. It was growing, and so we used to do brochures or flyers containing these uh, poems, and then at the end, everything was put together and even increased a little in the case of each book, and then the book came out. It only includes the books written between 2010 and, um, and 2019. Next, Dr. Pita begins to share a few of the poems that have been included in The Miracle Unfolds. This is from Smiling Angel, I think. It's called Harmonic Trio. One, time has a seed. In it we glimpse the foliage of future days. Two, God colonizes our soul, and we believe we are wise, eternal though mortal. Three, a play of shadows and meaning in the afternoon draws an enigmatic smile. The thing for me in poetry is time. Time is an illusion. Even physics says that time is an illusion, but we feel it as something that really bounds us for some reason. But poetry, for me, it opens my spirit to the current of eternity of the spirit in which um, time is like a watchtower. Mm -hmm. The present is like a watchtower 
from which you can see the past and the present and see then the meaning. What I call the designs, the landscapes of God is the meaning, the meaning you discover when you really see time as painters see space, you see? Mm -hmm. Time like a canvas that you have to consider present, past, and future in all in order to see the meaning. And this other poem from Legendary Entanglement, Legendary Entanglement, is a little about time in this sense also, and the encounters between people, how they help you find out meanings that otherwise would be not disclosed to you. This uh, poem says, space is not needed for this voyage. When I think of you, your inner world opens before me a rose of precious moments for my own introspection. Some of them ours, mostly others. The present becomes a wash tower, the better to live and see everything you were before we met and what you will be once I vanish from the visible having arrived at the grand embrace where all paths converge. This is a little one that follows that poem. Erin likes it very much, so I'm going to read it since she didn't. When you wish to find me, do not search within the ink and its discernible calligraphies. Like deep sea squid, I tend to hide in luminous clouds. <laughs> so is, can I take a guess? Are you telling people don't look for yourself in your poems? No, <laughs> no, don't look at in the most obvious. The ink would be what is more visible in life and and in, even in conversations and, and in scenes, is the most obvious. Look at me, actually in my poetry, are the luminous clouds. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I understand now what you're saying. The luminous clouds are, when you live in times of great chaos, for instance, and obscurity, you have to look in, in, into uh, the light. Things are not easily discernible. You have to look in, in what has light inner light. You have to look in light. It's not easy to read in light. It's easier to read in dark ink over paper, no? I'm trying to explain and I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to say too much. <laughs> no, sometimes uh, you need to explain a little bit for people that are hard-headed like myself. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, let me ask you a philosophical question because it may not be exactly related to what you were talking about, but this subject has come up with some friends of mine and actually uh, past guests on the podcast. A lot of people feel this anxiety, especially when attached to time. Like you said, it's, it's, it's a bit of an illusion, but we're still shackled to it and it still it puts lines in our faces. And what do you think is that feeling of unsettledness or feeling like, this is the only home we've ever known, but it still feels like it's not our home, or we feel like there's something else. What do you make of that? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, 
the, the thing is, I'm, I'm a believer, there is a, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. As a spiritual beings, we are never home. But this is our, this, we love this, the home we are in now, of course. I don't, don't like to talk about anxiety because poetry is transcendent, transcending that anxiety when you really consider that time is an illusion in the sense of the of the spirit you know mm -hmm. so we are cattle but we don't have to be attached in, in that sense you know mm -hmm. it's not that i write in order to complain because really if i embrace poetry it's because i know that liberates me and can liberate others from it mm -hmm. too you know yeah, there's a famous quote. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something to the effect of when we create, we actually slip the bonds of time and space. And it's a little bit how we're imitating God because God is a creator, correct? And when we create something, even though it's small and very simple com comparatively, uh, at least we're uh, maybe imitating our, our own creator. Yeah. And, and we don't feel as restless when we're doing that. Not only imitating, it's emulating, I would say. If this is what we are supposed to do in order to find meaning and to doing our thing as human beings. Mm -hmm. Because as Chesterton said, nature is wonderful and everything is wonderful, but we are a, a certain species that we have this uh, seed inside of us, of the divine, that we have to develop it and we have to act accordingly. Like Chesterton, that had a very good sense of humor, used to say, you can see one animal painted by ancient men, you know, but you will never see the opposite. You would never see a man <laughs> painted by an animal, no? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the thing. We, we have to, it's not that we try to imitate God. Mm -hmm. We have to do what we are supposed to be doing in order to discover things and to be enlightened. We have to go out and really try to make life light with others, and we have to create because in order to have epiphanies and and find the meaning, not create the meaning to to create a meaning so you can give a meaning to your life that is disconnected to the universe or to the designs of God. No, just to discover them. And actually, the word invention means originally etymologically discovery. It's nothing that you invent out of the blues. You have to discover things. And then one thing, one is creating, but that's fine. You are just discovering the possibilities. Yes, I think in music, uh, many have made this point that you know, no one really writes a song, but they discover these melodies that existed already. Like Chopin, who's... Uh, imaginary autobiography I wrote, but not because I invented anything, because I just got into him. I identify with him so much, with his life, letters, music, and everything, that after many years, I just figured I could express him. I can, he could sort of use me as a vessel, but not that I'm, you know, inventing things. I'm just identifying. It's an identification process in which really can read others, people's minds, no? what they meant and what they felt.
Bear with me as I share a story that may illustrate some of Juana Rosa's observations about chance and encounters. Back in 2013, after living in China for a few years, I found myself searching for books that were banned or unavailable in that particular socialist dictatorship. Initially, it was the works of mostly Chinese dissidents and exiles, but these stories led me to look at books by survivors of other regimes, including the former Soviet Union, Poland, North Korea, and eventually Cuba. In Armando Valladera's autobiography, Against All Hope, he mentions that while in a Cuban prison, he and another writer's poems have been smuggled out of the prisons and of Cuba itself, ultimately being published by foreign organizations. The other poet was Angel Quadra. So, I got his book, The Poet in Socialist Cuba, in which poems that he and a much younger Juana Rosa Pita corresponded with were included. That, of course, led me to Mrs. Pita's other work, and eventually, by locating her son, Mario, I was able to get both of them on this program. And one result of that initial interview with Juana Rosa is that since she has very little presence on the internet, on occasion I will get an email or social media message from someone curious about the poet or her work. Well, a month or so ago, a man down in Argentina named Tomas Silva contacted me because he had been doing some remodeling on his home and ended up finding a letter Juana Rosa had written to the late artist Ilberto Irdai some 30 years ago. The friendship between the two was so profound, Dr. Pita had written a book called Tela de Concierto, which celebrated her kinship with Mr. Erdai. As it turns out, Mr. Silva is a filmmaker and now is working on a documentary about all of these uncanny events. So I had to ask Juana Rosa about this whole synchronicitous happening. Well, that was a, a book I wrote uh, um, many years ago. Actually, I almost write most of the book in New Orleans when I was professor at Tulane University, when I knew that Gilberto Urdai, who was my twin soul in the most profound sense, because we met only three days in Miami when he went to, this is a very long story, so I cannot probably say too much that is meaningful now. But yeah. we we had met in 1983, and the first day we met, we had discovered we were these uh, twin souls. Mm-hmm. Actually, he wrote to me in a catalog, a, a dedication that says, to Juana Rosa, to the separation, it says, of the strangers, por las almas gemelas, for twin souls, for the word and the color, let's leave. And we know we had some mission and some bonding that it was beyond that moment, but but that it was going to transcend forever. And that was true because we were in contact through mail for four years and then we got disconnected. But then we always were in contact in his work, in his paintings and in my work, in my poetic work. And then all of a sudden now, one and a half months ago, a couple, a marvelous young couple that they were born the same year we met uh-huh. in Miami. Wow. <laughs> so notice how young they are. Uh-huh. They are only 38 years old. And he is a cinematographer. They found a letter of mine in the wall of the apartment they just bought and were uh, redecorating. And they took off the wood from the 
one of the walls and found this letter of mine, two pages, that he left there before he went to his country, to Lima, Peru, to die because he, he had been diagnosed mm -hmm. that he was going to die. So he left that letter, but he left it there with the faith that it was going to be found eventually. And this is what I was saying about the time shouldn't be an anxiety. She, he told me chronological time doesn't have anything to do with real spiritual life and creation and let alone with our encounter. This is one thing that transcends chronological time. Um, chronological time, that means that it transcends even life and death. So that book I wrote when I knew about his death included uh, cartas, letters, interdimensional letters, in which I talk to him and he talks to me from the other side, which is the other side of, of life. And this is a true experience. And at the same time, it's a poetic creation and a pictorial creation was for him, the paintings he left before he left. So now uh, this Tomás Pérez Silva and, and his companion, Agustina, they are all evolved into doing a wonderful documentary about our story, huh. which is a true story and at the same time, a transcendental story of creation and of uh, uh, what I was saying about a design that transcend present, past and future. And it has a, a, like a pattern that transcends our personal lives uh, in the sense that even they go after death, no? Continuing, resurging, like a, this is a like revival, a renaissance of, the, of our story. And some musicians in Latin America have composed music. Diana Rismendi in Venezuela, epigrammas for soprano, percussion, and guitar. They are recorded, and Cáceres in San Salvador. They have been previewed in Juilliard in New York, his soprano and piano. Inspired in this particular uh, experience of ours that became also a work of poetry of mine and also in his paintings that are in his retrospective. Uh, it's showed in communication. Everything that was happening, he transformed it into art and me too. And therefore, we keep also inspiring other artists. And now these people in Buenos Aires that felt touched, they felt that they were part of this adventure, so to speak, as he said, you know, this adventure becomes an adventure for others too, you know, that transcend again mortality and transcend time. I envision that Erberto had a big smile on his face when he stuffed your letter into the wall because I got a big smile on my face now because it just, it's like another gift that he gave to you, almost like a communication that he knew you would find many decades later. Exactly. Uh, I mean, for me to know when this happened, I felt overjoyed. Then it got to me the sadness mm -hmm. that then I returned to see what 
should I have done differently that we didn't intercommunicate? But that was a, see, this is one of the things that we do wrong. We try to make it different. But then immediately I realized, no, this is wonderful. He had the face absolutely that this was going to happen. Not exactly that. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he had the face, open face, that it was meaningful and it was going to happen something wonderful hopefully when uh mr silva gets the film done i'll have a opportunity to talk to him to hear his point of view from all this i hear him talk and he's been contaminated in the best thing of the world you know he already (laughs) speaks our language as if he had been born into the experience into the human and the creative artistic experience Since the time is finishing probably for you, I would like to read uh, uh, one of the last poems of... Uh, sure of the Miracle on Falls, which is from the book, Imagining the Truth. And this one is, the key is elsewhere, is this poem. Sooner or later, we, sea workers, will realize that the key to reality is in dreams. And the key to life is in faith. The key to physics is in poetry and earth is at the bottom of the sea. Divine strategy thus endows human intelligence with free will. Do you want to talk about that one at all? (laughs) No. You know, I I would invite to reread and reread this Mm -hmm. poem, you know. Things are not easily to figure out. Mm -hmm. The key to everything is in the opposite side where you don't think it is. That would be the only explanation I can give. Things are not easy to figure out, and this is why, you know, I actually say I write because otherwise I wouldn't understand anything in a deep sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Poetry has find the deeper sense of everything, otherwise everything is meaningless and uh, and can be chaotic to really go through through the darkness of the times. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Peter's book, The Miracle Unfolds, go to songbridgeproject.org. Also, Miss Goodman has translated other Spanish poets, which you can find at her website, eringuidmantranslation.com. And if you'd like to hear more of Juana Rosa Pita, of course, check out our initial interview on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 129. Some other Segments that might be of interest are 209 with fellow Cuban exile poet Ricardo Paujosa, who shares some of his work and thoughts on politics, art, and history. Then there's 254, where we talk with Cuban historian Victor Triai about the recent July 11th protests. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, 
you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.